0: Hi, my name is Max Rye. Uh, I beat the off in path by making cell-based milk. Uh, that means making real milk, but without the animal. Uh, this is something that I'm very excited about.
1: Welcome back to the Beat the Off in Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help us think outside the box in our lives and careers. Well, my guest today is Max Rye, and he's the co-founder and chief strategist of Turtle Tree, the world's first sustainable lactoferrin made with precision fermentation. Don't know what any of that means? Great, because I didn't either. Essentially, they're able to not just emulate real cow's milk, but actually produce the identical proteins, the ones that give both cow and human milk its nutritional value. We'll learn how Max decided to embrace the kind of change he wanted to see by founding this futuristic company that has the potential to change so many industries around the world. Well, they just closed $30 million in Series A funding, so it's game on time. Here's Max Rye, co-founder of Turtle Tree. Well, welcome to the show, Max. Thank you so much for joining me all the way from Singapore. We've got uh, several miles of cable between us right now. Let's hope that the technology gods are smiling down upon us right now. <laughs> uh, cell-based milk. Fascinating topic because there are people out there who say there have been alternative milks for a long time. And actually, I've covered one such alternative milk. On the show, coincidentally enough, I seek out these kinds of things. But there are those who would say, oh, we've had oat milk and almond milk, and we've had various different types of milk, coconut milk, hemp milk, whatever. What is so different, and why is this movement new? What is fresh about this versus the dairy alternatives that have been on the market forever, for a long time?
0: You know, that's a really good question, Ross. I think if you think about this, uh, what we've done over time is we started off – Uh, not having any alternatives, Um, I mean, I think soy was one of the early, early um, alternatives that, that were out there. And then we went to something with oat milk and other types of milks that resembled, you know, the texture of milk and maybe even the taste of it in some ways. But one thing that we were still lacking and have been lacking is the nutritional value. I mean, there's a reason why people grow up drinking milk, right? You know, mothers tell their kids they drink a glass of milk. There is actually some science behind that. There's a nutritional value in what you're drinking. And, and it turns out there are specific proteins, um, and the proteins we've never heard of. Actually, we've heard of whey and casein, uh, but nobody's really heard of things like lactoferrin. Actually, those are the real proteins in milk that give it that extra benefit, that health benefit. And that's really where we saw the opportunity to use technology to be able to produce some of these most valuable things that are in milk and being able to uh, make those available and maybe even put those into these existing milks that are out there to to fortify them.
1: Yep. Well, there's been different criticisms on different sides of this issue. There are those who say that milk in its current form is causing all kinds of problems for kids, those who are vegan or who are against it. Why would you give a cow's milk, something that's designed for a baby calf, to a human it doesn't add up? And you're saying, yes, there is some kind of logic to feeding kids cow's milk in general. There are others who say the way that the milk industry has been done recently, that it's causing kids to hit puberty faster or to somehow grow in an unnatural way that's causing problems. And then on the other side, you talked about soy milk. There are those who are fans of dairy milk, and they'll say things like, oh, soy for men is particularly bad. I think it raises estrogen levels." I mean, you hear all kinds of things. So what's true and what's not true when it comes to what we need from milk or don't need?
0: You know, the way we drive uh, innovation is really through the science. And uh, so one of our strongest collaborations is the UC Davis uh, up in Northern California. Uh, And they have one of the deepest teams, uh, actually five different teams that have different insights into dairy and into milk ingredients and proteins and uh, oligosaccharides, these different components of milk. And I think that's really the best way to move forward is using going through science, being able to prove out what's good for you and what isn't. Because a lot of stuff is just anecdotal, right? Hey, listen, my my cousin told me, my aunt told me I shouldn't be drinking this or that. When we looked at milk, we looked at, hey, listen, do we really need to be drinking more whey protein or casein? um, Or is there other parts of milk that we, we actually believe scientifically is better for you? And what we spent over the last few years is identifying that within milk and then actually laser focusing in on those specific proteins. Uh, lactoferrin is one of them. It, it's actually shown to be extremely beneficial for human health, for gut health, brain health, um, for iron uptake uh, throughout the body. Uh, and this protein is something that we are looking at bringing into not just plant-based milks, but other types of uh, cell-based uh, products as well. So uh, going back to your 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 first question, uh, I think there is a lot of confusion uh, in what's good for you and what's not good for you. And every side of the aisle is going to have something uh, negative to say about what they don't like. But the reality is, is we've got to go through science if we want to um, if we want to actually um, see what's good for you. And what is isn't.
1: Yeah. So what if you don't believe in science? Because my cousin posts a lot of memes on Facebook and, uh, you know, he says a lot of bad things about people who don't drink milk. He calls them sissies, says they're idiots. So why should I trust science over my cousin? Because he's been a right, he's been right about a lot of things so far.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't change everybody's mind. I'm not going to be able to get, bring everybody on board. But at the end of the day, we have some major issues around climate change and sustainability, and we need to be able to bring in other options and other alternatives uh, to to the table uh to say and there are going to be some people who no matter what you say are not going to change your minds i also have a lot of friends who also believe in a lot of things that i don't a lot of uh, conspiracy theories as well however i still love them they're still family <laughs> and friends so
1: <laughs> yes no we love science i love science i have a little flag that says yay science uh So you've been systematically studying what exactly it is. And, of course, I was talking with your colleague earlier about climate change and these things that are very real and things that are connected and unconnected. And I think that's a good diving in point for your mission and your work because there's a particularly pernicious campaign of memes, a Facebook campaign. I think it's originating in the U.K. right now. It's a backlash where they're posting a meme where there's a left and a right, and on the left side it says all of the ingredients in a Beyond Burger, and it's a pea protein isolate, and you know some kind of oil, and all these things. And then on the other side it says, beef, guess which one's better? And they're sort of framing it as a false comparison that beef is just one ingredient, and it's one all-natural awesome thing, and all of these other things must therefore be worse. It's not natural. Obviously, we know that that is not true. Beef is itself one thing, but it's a composite of many, many, many other things. It takes some 1,800 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. It takes antibiotics and hormones in some cases and land and all kinds of other things while emitting methane and greenhouse gases. And that says nothing for the process of how you obtain this, which, according to your website... Says 99% of all of these things come from factory farms, which is not this grass fed idyllic scenario, a sylvan environment where a cow is in harmony with nature, just living off of grass. So, again, what is the, the truth here, or how did you use science to arrive at the truth of these things?
0: Uh, listen, I'm going to be controversial and Ross and saying a few things as well. Right. I'm I'm not the the biggest um, eater of these impossible or or, or um, beyond type of products. Um, for me, I'm, I'm all about personal health. I'm, I'm I'm really focused these days on taking care of myself. Uh, so I'm trying not to eat a lot of processed foods. Uh, so if I want plant based, I will usually go out and get veggies, and I will usually usually eat uh, those types of things um, the way they are. Where I do see the promise of technology is the cell-based meat side. When if we're talking about beef, right, there are some, there are a handful of amazing companies that have rock star teams. They're building real meat uh, using technology, so they can say, "Hey, this stuff—it's got the same flavor, texture. Uh, there's no uh, soy hemoglobin or so forth. It's all real uh, tissue that we're we're talking about here." Um, that has the same nutritional value, but minus all the antibiotics, minus all of the different animal cruelty stuff that we see with real beef. So I do see some promise there. I see some really great stuff coming down so the line. Do but when it comes to the current offerings, not really, uh, Not really. really. I'm not really a, a huge uh, fan of that. Now, if you look at Turtle Tree, our te- our focus is also how do we bring in the absolute best parts of milk, real milk. Uh, we're not talking about synthetic, um, you know, just mimicking milk's uh, nutritional value. But we think that that's actually really, really important. And we- it'll be a big part of how we eat. At the end of the day, whatever we put into our bodies, people, moms out there, right? Uh, they're looking at the packaging. They want to know that this stuff is actually good for my kid. And we want to use science to be able to show showcase that. they Listen, your kid's going to feel better. Their, their gut health, their gut brain access, it's going to be good for them. We can scientifically show that. These are the type of things that we think is going to have a bigger impact. It's got to be sustainable. We got to not have animals. But at the end of the day, uh, aside from tasting delicious, it has to be good for you. And otherwise, moms are not going to pick it up.
1: Yep. And do you add TBHQ for freshness? That's an ingredient I like to see.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. We I mean transparency and so forth is all a big part of uh, all its products coming down the line. Otherwise, I don't think people are really going to um are going to go for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, on your website you have a nice little graphic which in some ways raises more questions than others about how the process actually works. So, describe the actual process here. What are we doing to achieve this? We really
0: uh it, the process that we have, it's one of the oldest processes with fermentation. Uh, if you you know fermentation, we know how a lot of it, some of these uh, kombucha products are made w- with fermentation as well. Uh, but it's a very similar to that when it comes to the fermentation process. However, there's a few extra processes downstream uh, that that filter out the proteins that, w- that we're focused on uh, getting out. Um, but uh, I, I think um, there are a handful of of citric acid and a number of other products that we currently use today already go through the same method. Um, a lot of our detergents, uh, active ingredients, all of them actually are used precision fermentation uh, to be able to uh, to produce. And this is something that we're also leveraging. Uh, and uh, we're just applying a lot of the stuff for high value uh, milk proteins.
1: So, but how how does that work? Because I'm completely ignorant here. What are we doing? How do we synthesize? You said it's not synthesized. I saw a picture on your website of there's a cow and there's some cells and there's a petri dish, then there's a bioreactor of some kind. So what is this? What is the process? What are we starting with? And how do we know that it's milk or milkish enough?
0: Sure, sure. I mean, so so this is how we um, I'm going to try to explain this as high level as possible because I'm not a scientist myself as well. Okay,
1: Good. I, and um, I'm an so- idiot. So, so do your best to dumb it down. <laughs>
0: So we get yeast. We have this yeast, um, you know, uh, organism, uh, this microbial, and we actually engineer that uh, that yeast to uh, ingest sugar, uh, which is a very simple material. And then inside of that yeast, uh, there's a process that happens that, that converts that that sugar and turns it into um, the identical protein that of target. Uh, and that's really uh, that process that happens inside the yeast uh, is what's really crucial here. And then at the end of the day. Uh, after about three or four days, it it, uh, it spits out the protein, uh, and uh, that protein then is a, a is a hundred percent identical protein that comes that's inside of cow milk, and then we have this purification process that happens after that, where we just get rid of the yeast and get rid of any of the other sugars, and all we're left with is that protein that we're looking for uh, downstream.
1: And this is something that you can do. You can use yeast to create multiple different types of proteins. What? How does that work?
0: It's been around for a long time, Um, and what's really cool is a lot of citric acid and a number of other things that we actually see on the market. That's how most of the stuff is actually made today. They start with they start with a this microbial um, yeast. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fungal platforms also that are out there. They also do that. Um, but believe it or not, uh, that's uh, that's a, a very powerful organism. Uh, over time, that's been that's been able to to produce proteins that we can't naturally get sometimes or get enough of sometimes in, in, in nature.
1: Okay, so you've got this identical. What you said, lactoferrin. Uh, you've got these proteins. What's the next step then? What form does that take?
0: So it's a, when we put it on the market, it's a powderized format at the end of the day. It's a, it's just how you would get whey proteins so already powderized. Um, but we would powderize their proteins and we would uh, work with all of our B2B partners. So, and that's what we're doing today is we're working with our B2B partners to then integrate that lactoferrin into all kinds of other products. So anything from yogurts to to dairy, uh, alternative dairy protein, and milks, um, even sports nutrition products, all of these things, uh, we believe lactoferrin will have a huge role in there. Uh, and we also, um, I mean, let me take a step back a little bit. One of the biggest applications today of lactoferrin is actually infant formula. Uh,
1: infant I was going to talk about that later, in- yeah.
0: And that's also one of our uh, one of our um, uh, commercial paths as well. But infant formula, uh, you know, they they've seen the benefit of lactoferrin. It's a, an abundant thing in mother's milk. Uh, they've seen how much of an impact it makes on on human health, and so they've started integrating that over the last several years. But still, in a very small amount, because there's just a, not enough of it on the market. Um, and, and I want to I want to let you guys know how is lactoferrin. Um, isolated today. How do we get it today? So, in a liter of milk, there's only about 0.1 gram of it. It's a tiny little amount, uh, and that's um, that's how we in this process of of getting rid of everything else except for that tiny little amount is just not sustainable. Uh, and uh, it's something that uh, it's not scalable. I mean, we we see tons of it on the market, but every time there's a new player on the market, the price fluctuates. And it ranges uh, from a few hundred bucks to a few thousand bucks per kilogram uh, just because of that supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Um, but even even that being said, such a small amount of infinite formula uh, companies have it. Because there's a not enough of it on the market, so we want to be able to bring this lactoferrin product in for, into the infant nutrition industry as well, and be able to supply this, in, especially into areas that don't have access to it—places all over uh, Africa, Asia. Uh, we think that uh, making this more abundant on the market it will really help um, with with infant nutrition.
1: And in those cases, you'd be selling it in powdered forms; so you wouldn't be shipping around liquid, which is a plus. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So you've isolated this. You've used an age-old technique. You've got lactoferrin. It's present in both breast milk and in cow's milk, and is that and that's perhaps the linking thread between breast milk and cow's milk, and why children can be raised on cow's milk instead of breast milk. Correct me if I'm wrong at any point of this. Okay. So you've got these two paths here. You go to UC Davis up in Norcal, and you run some tests. What kind of tests are you running? How many different milks did you compare head to head? How do you decide that this is giving us the same thing or something better?
0: So as when we're talking about running tests with UC Davis, um, they have different labs that can test the, um, I guess, is this protein exactly that protein? So they do the analytics around it. They have another lab that that looks at how does that protein affect your gut, when it goes inside of your stomach, what, what stuff happens, so they'll look at stool and a number of other different things are there. They also uh, look at the immune responses, I mean there's a number of different things that that uh, the labs are able to help us with, and also be able to, be able to do uh, animal studies to say is this animal healthier and better uh, after consuming this, this specific protein. So that's been uh, really, really helpful for us to be able to um, really do R&D around it. Um, but that being said, Turtle Tree, we have our own um, rock star team of scientists. Um, they're in Boston. We have an R&D lab in Boston. Our chief scientist is there. And then we have a lab in, in the Davis area as well.
1: And all of that has shown positive. Is there a difference of any kind, or have there been test results to indicate that this is actually better than cows or is it just at best the same health wise? Listen,
0: what we want to be able to, what we want to be able to show is that lactoferrin. Is the same as the stuff that you pull out of uh, uh, cow milk. That is what we want to be able to show, because regulatory wise, you want to be able to show that it's a identical protein, right? Uh, if it's like ten times better than the FDA is gonna be like, hold on, this is not. This is a totally new product. Uh, we don't milk. know what this is in nature. Yeah. <laughs> right. But what we want to be able to show is this lactoferrin protein is exactly the same, and that is a that is a, that, that's huge because even. Even that being said, it's a very, very valuable protein. It's a micronutrient. Uh, and if we can actually replace the cow isolated versions, it will have a huge impact.
1: All right. So let's let's dive into some of those impact things before we rewind way, way, way back and get into some more of the personal details of your life. But let's talk about the impact. We know that there are climate change. We know that there are many different things that are happening all around us at once. I live in an area that is plagued by drought or mega drought or extreme drought. The entire southwestern part of the United States is basically now in drought. California is among the worst. Things are not looking super great. So what are some of the issues that you hope to alleviate with this
0: you know, one of the so being in Asia for the last three years, Ross, and I'm from California as well. Uh, we are actually very fortunate that we still have quite an abundance of of, of uh, food in, in the U.S. Uh, but we have been facing some crazy droughts recently in in California. But being in Asia, one of the things I've I've seen is accessibility to any of this stuff. Uh, I mean, this is a very hot climate region. There's not a bunch of cows that are that that are that are just living in this area that comfortably. So um, I think food security is a big one actually. Uh, in Sing, uh, I'm in Singapore and Singapore is really, really focused on food security. This whole pandemic was a highlight. I think uh, during the pandemic, all-, all kinds of shelves were being wiped clean and people were panicking. It's an island nation. I think this is a this was a scary situation. And I think the government really thought, OK, we've got to be able to have some food resilience here. We've got to be able to find a way to make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen in the future or we can be better prepared for it. Uh, and that's Singapore, but you have Indonesia, you have Japan, you have China, all these big, you have India, all these big countries are all going to be having this crunch. And what that? what is that crunch? 30% of all of our arable land, and that means land where stuff can grow on, is going to disappear in the next 10 years because of uh, climate change. That's a lot of land, and that's a lot of food taken off the table. Uh, so we think that these types of solutions are not just a nice to have, they're going to be re- almost mandatory in the future, if we're going to be able to feed these people. Uh, I mean, just last week, half of India basically uh, is flooding at the moment. 100% of the crops in Pakistan all lost. Uh, we're talking about um, this is a, a huge scale, uh, tens of billions of dollars of loss. But more than that, it's excess access to food now it disappears, right? Uh, and I think that's where uh, what we're talking about with climate change, food security, all these things make that this type of technology is going to become mandatory. And it's not just us. There's a handful of other companies doing really cool stuff around it, but uh, we think that this is this is really the future of um, sustainable, healthier, better food.
1: Yeah. I love it. I think it's a great idea, and I think here in the United States, people are not so informed about the true nature of these things, and also often deliberately misinformed, we can say, by certain people who have a vested interest in the system as it has been. But California in particular, there's a weird relationship between the rest of the United States and California, which you must be aware of in the sense they say, oh, you shouldn't have lived there. All the people living near the Great Lakes say, oh, you shouldn't have lived in California. You should have lived near fresh water, you idiot. Meanwhile, most of the water that's used in California goes to make food for the rest of the states. So just because you're living in a Great Lakes state, you could be eating vegetables that are all these things that are coming from California and you're blaming us for using water as though... It's my personal responsibility sitting here in my tiny little house for there not being enough water. But obviously, agriculture is a huge, huge part of that. And meat and cows are a huge, huge part of that. Again, 1,800 gallons of water to create one pound of beef, 718 gallons of water to create one pound of pork. And this is from an article I was reading on foodtank.com, whereas, of course, soybeans, the water footprint is 206 gallons and corn is 108 gallons. So that's And that's just water. That says nothing, again, like you said, the, the reduction of arable land here. So knowing that we've got these crunches, knowing that we've got these shortages, knowing that we've got these extreme weather events happening around the world that are affecting crops, how is stuff like this more food secure? What is the process in terms of input, output, time,
0: you know, Ross, when, one of the things that really shocked me when I, because uh, I'm not originally from this industry, but w- the sheer scale that it takes to be able to feed people, like the, the the scale of of how much you need to grow, how much you need to be able to to do to be able to feed even a small city, and um, that has been really interesting for me. Uh, and what what it helped me understand is it's going to take some time. These solutions that we're building, even that will actually have a dent in this system. But the manufacturing and the infrastructure required to be able to scale up even our technologies, it's going to take 10 plus years, maybe 10, 20 years to get to some of those uh, those scales. Uh, so I think this is a good start. Um, but if going back on what you were saying, we have massive issues in uh, California and in the southwest right uh, there's massive drought issues and i don't think that's disappearing we we've taken um we we've kind of taken that for granted like you mentioned people in the mid in the, in uh, in the in the east coast and everywhere else kind of enjoy our vegetables and and uh, what we have in California but that can actually um that can actually be disrupted if we're running short on water and having yeah. issues around the drought and so forth. So uh, for us, it's about being able to build these systems, use technology to be able to solve some of these problems and still understand that we're going to be able to um, produce these high value proteins early on. And then at some point, be able to scale that to be able to feed a much larger uh, amount of amount of people. But it's, it's definitely a huge challenge, though.
1: Well, I love the concept and replacing protein powder with a better one. I think all of the applications you described are are phenomenal and well worth pursuing. There are many different angles. And anybody who has been a parent and who has seen that there have been shortages of formula availability in the last several years. Now, thankfully, my daughter was slightly older than that, so I just missed that. But knowing that there are these shortages and what a valuable commodity, even things like formula are. I didn't realize until I became a parent myself that formula was locked behind a key in most grocery stores in America because people steal it at such a high level. The demand is very, very high. And you just sort of assume before you become a parent that these things are always available, that they're readily available. You never even It never crosses your mind. And then later, you start to panic, you think, what if I don't have something for my kid? What if what if the shelves are empty and I can't feed my baby? That's just a nightmare scenario for every parent. So I think all of the use cases you described make sense. I think they're all valuable. I think for me, just as a regular consumer, it's nice to be able to just drink this, add it to my protein shake, and not have to worry about whey protein or where these things are coming from. Many different angles that I personally ap- appreciate of this product. But I do want to rewind a bit here and get into your personal story. So tell me a little bit about how you personally came to be involved in this mission. What were the sequence of events? You said you didn't start out in this industry. So where did you start out?
0: I actually, so uh, UC Davis is my alma mater, but I did not do anything in ag. Okay. Okay. I I was a computer engineer. Uh, and for the past fifteen years prior to this company, I was a CEO of a tech company, uh, and this is something that uh, I was passionate about. Uh, um, but about ten plus years ago, I, I started complaining and whining that people are not doing enough to help with this climate change issues. People need to get off their ass. People need to do to 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 get rid of this um, greenhouse gases. They need to 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 do all these different. They need to build solutions. Well, at some point. Um, you know, I thought, OK, listen, I can't just complain. I got to get involved myself. Uh, and, uh, and I love the tech industry. But at some point, I felt like I wanted to take a step back and reevaluate where I want to be. And I stepped down from my previous company and I spent some time um, really, really learning as much as I can about sustainability space. In uh, the food, in the food security space as well, just because all, all that stuff is super linked. Uh, and um, I, I gave them talks on this on this uh, subject, and um, actually, Google headquarters in Singapore, I I, came, I was able to come here and give a talk on sustainability uh, and uh, food technology. And that's actually where I met my co-founder, my CEO. She was actually working for Google. Cool. And she was like, wow, this is really cool. This is a really, really cool thing that you can use technology to make food. Well, I had this huge challenge. I want to make milk because I, I have this hobby of making cheese. And I can't find any good milk around here. And that just got us really excited. And there was this one moment when I thought, wow. This entire region has to import all of their milk from other parts of the world. And this is where the majority of the population in the world is. This is a huge opportunity and a huge challenge uh, and something that is this, this very needed. So that was like the, the 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 moment I thought we should do something together on this. Uh, and after a few meetings, we just got much more serious and much more uh, excited about the space. Now, I want to take a step back. I'm a, I'm a tech guy. It's not like I know anything about the space. So... I actually went through a, a journey in myself where I reinvented myself, right? I had to learn. I took courses online uh, at uh, on this uh, MIT biotechnology course. Uh, I actually just finished uh, an EMBA program uh, at, uh, at Essex School of Business. It's you know, you have to um you have to continue to grow and continue to to uh, educate yourself and and that there was a journey that I went on. And uh, thankfully, I'm at that point now where I feel like I'm really well versed in the space and I kind of know the industry really well. Um, but it, it took it took some time.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And there are those who say, I, of course, don't agree with this. And I doubt that many entrepreneurs do. But there are those who believe that it's all hopeless, that it's, it's hubris to even assume that we could make any kind of change and say, oh, there are a all of these climate change, they're, they're far beyond human control, despite what the studies have said. It's just, this is a giant system. You can't look at all the variables of this system. And yes, it's heating, but no, it's not our fault. Yes, these things are happening, but it's not because of capitalism or the way the companies have been set up. It's just totally unconnected. How do you feel now that you've really dived in? Because obviously it's a logical train of thought to go from somebody should make a change to, hey, maybe I should make a change. I think I'm there right now with myself, and I think a lot of people are. So knowing that, how do you feel now having dived in about your ability to make the kind of change that you feel that you wanted to on this point? Do you feel more optimistic now? Do you feel less optimistic about the same
0: I feel that, uh, first of all, I wake up every day excited. I love what I do. I, my team is one of the world's best. And to be able to have the opportunity to work with these folks and learn from them, uh, it has been amazing. That's, that journey has been super cool. Uh, when, when it comes to me making an impact and change, I can see it based off of the work that's happening in the lab uh, and how close we are to commercialization. But I do, one of the things that I can say is I do understand the sheer scale of this problem now more than I did before. I knew that before something had to be done and there's a huge challenge there, but the more I dug in, the more I see the supply chain and the more I see the scale of what it takes to feed humanity. I realize this is a, this is going to be a bigger task and a bigger challenge and something that I we can't, um, our company can't do alone. It's going to be a combination of amazing companies. We're going to have to come together, the government, people themselves are all going to have to be aligned to be able to make this change. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult uh, to do.
1: So you mentioned a 10-year time frame. What do you think we need 10 years to achieve? What's going to happen best case scenario in the next 10 years?
0: You know, so today there's a handful of companies, uh, including Turtle Tree, that have the technology, right? We have this really cool technology and we can show this technology can scale even if, even at, uh, up to a thousand liter scale or 10,000 liter scale. But what, what, need, what needs to happen is more infrastructure on the manufacturing side needs to happen because these processes need to happen at 50,000 liters, multiple massive tanks. But those types of systems take time to build. I mean, if you look at the manufacturing facilities today, sometimes it's taking four or five years to build a large manufacturing facility, and we need a lot of these facilities throughout the world, uh, not just uh, not just a few. Uh, so I think that that's where it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time there. I think regulatory approval. I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, many companies have already shown this as a safe product. It's a good product. Um, but uh, I think what's going to take the longest is really going to be the infrastructure around the space and building that up and being able to get the supply chain set. And by the way, it's not just startups. These big companies like, um, like Givadon and, and BSM, many of these players are taking this seriously now. They're all actually investors into this technology as well so um, they also see the challenges and they want to get ahead of it so this is going to have to be a um a collective effort from from the whole industry
1: well speaking of investors funding i saw recently again that you closed 30 million in funding not too long ago that might be old news by now Uh, how have the investors been responding to the idea how has the climate been
0: so Uh, You know, we're very fortunate that many of our investors are amazing. Um, Prince College from KBW. uh, We have um, CPT Capital, Jeremy Collier's office in the UK, really a lot of global investors. Verso, who led our last round, is an amazing investor. Their whole team has been uh, amazing, but really the type of investor that you want uh, to have on your cap table should be aligned with your goals. Uh, They should be a part of this industry. So they also see this as a mission. Uh, for, for them as well. Uh, so this is this has been uh, interesting. It's been exciting, uh, but so far we've been very fortunate. We also won the Temasek Livability Challenge. Temasek is basically the sovereign fund here in Singapore. Uh, they have put a lot of efforts into this industry, and we are very thankful to have their support. Um, we will be doing another round in the future, but I just want to say that we think that. Continue to bring on investors who care about climate, who care about food security, uh, who care about the space, uh, who are educated in the space, are better to have sometimes than people who are just looking for returns and just looking at a time period uh, because at that point, uh, sometimes there can be a lot of misalignment.
1: And do you think there are enough of those people who are able to say, yes, we can wait 10 years because this is something that humanity needs versus me getting X return in the next three years?
0: I think more and more are, and what many sovereign funds are also recognizing is this is not just about returns. This is about food security. This is about how do we feed our people in the next ten years, Uh, and when when. So I I kind of um, I kind of liken this to the mRNA uh, vaccine, right? Uh, You know, these guys actually puddled away for about 20 years, uh, and nobody really gave them any, like, ah, I don't (laughs) know what's going to happen with that virus, right? Right. We have enough other stuff going on. And then all of a sudden, a huge catastrophe happens. Uh, where we have this huge pandemic, and then these guys now are some of the most valuable in the world, and, and this is the this is the technology we need to be able to save humanity uh, in in many ways. And I do believe there's going to be that point in the future where we're going to have some massive droughts, massive issues around the planet, and technologies like this are going to be become one of the main ways that we continue feeding the, feeding our people.
1: Yep, I completely agree. And to your point about the mRNA vaccine. That was in the early days of when I started this podcast. Obviously, I wanted that one woman. I can't remember her name. I wanted her on this show so bad. She was a megastar at that point. But <laughs> you expect somebody who's been doing We always talked as kids, and I'm sure it was like this for you as well. You say, what if I could invent a cure for cancer or a cure for AIDS? What? What a hero I'd be. And here I thought, they did that. And instead of being celebrated as heroes around the world, they're crucified, they're vilified as some kind of horrible monsters. I thought, how cruel is that? Somebody does something so amazing over a 20-year period, and instead of celebrating it, we accuse them of incredible harm. That just really broke my heart, people's unwillingness to accept that. And I think it speaks to a broader distrust of science, the scientific method, the scientific process— a broader distrust of anything scientists say which again i feel is very unfair but it does appear to be the world that we live in so probably people will accept the solution but maybe begrudgingly accept it or uh, with great uh, kicking and screaming in 10 years when they have no other choice i don't know <laughs> Maybe well, you're, you're right.
0: And Ross you mentioned you mentioned there's a lot of people who are like, "Hey, this is the, the climate change is not real. This is not real." Well, it's never real until it hits you, right? And uh, wh- and I think what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to feel the effects of it. and starting to feel the effects of it, and then have to face the harsh reality. And uh, that's that's when the rest of us have to continue building solutions and making sure that the rest of us can eat and continue a um, you know, way of
1: life. And, and of course, I do applaud you for taking that step because it is a huge, 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 huge step in any human's life to say, I'm going to be the one who does something about this. The old saying, if not you, then who, if not now, then when, and you embody that. You say you're happy to wake up every day to go to work, to do this, to work on this mission with your team. I completely get that. Is that different from life in your previous tech company? Is that different from how you felt in your career prior to this endeavor?
0: Listen, I, I was very comfortable in my past uh, career. It was really, really comfortable. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, my, my mom used to say, listen, if you you can be a millionaire even as a garbage man. If you're a good businessman, no matter what you do, you're going to make a lot of money. But the purpose and finding meaning in what you do uh, is actually a different story, right? Uh, you can make money doing anything, but do you feel alive? Do you feel excited when you go to work? And I just got to the point where I wanted that. I wanted to um I, I enjoyed my previous job, but it got to the point where I felt like I wanted to do something in this sustainability industry, uh, something around this space. and uh, that's really where my thoughts uh, started going towards over time. Um, but I do believe that I'm just so much more excited these days about about uh, about what I'm doing. Mm.
1: Well, how did you handle that transition? How did that actually go from the moment that you made that decision to actually doing this? What was that period like?
0: Um, It was very difficult in the early days to convince investors that uh, you're not a scientist and you wanna let a scientist uh, type of company. Uh, Most people in this space are are usually gonna be PhDs and so forth, and that will be the founder or so forth. So for me, in the early days, it was a challenge trying to uh, say, "Listen, I I'm a good businessman. I can learn. I can figure this out. I got the passion for this. Uh, give me a chance." Uh, and uh, and uh, to be honest with you, very fortunate that we had the opportunity uh, where some investors said, "Listen, you, you guys you guys got what it takes, uh, and you guys can build a, a, a world class team, and you're starting to do that, uh, and we're going to believe in you." But it was a challenge early on. Russ, it was no walk in the park. And, uh, and this is also an inspirational thing that I'd love to be able to talk to folks about is you can do it. If you, if you put in their time, put in the energy and the resources, you can reinvent yourself and you can actually focus on something that you're really passionate about.
1: Yeah. How do you think that people can best approach that? For example, who have a job, because I have the sense that a lot of people are generally stuck. How can they best approach it? If they feel stuck, they're not sure what specific next step to take. Quit your job now. Quit it later. Work on something on the side. How do you feel about that? When somebody's struggling, as I I feel many people are,
0: I think it all starts with building a network and in educating yourself. There is there's a, the Good Food Institute, which is a really a global institution uh, that educates and and has a lot of resources for people who are interested in the space. But I would just, if you're interested in a specific part of this of this technology stack or the supply chain of sustainability or whatever it is, just start reading more about it and educating yourself more about it, and start building a network of other people who are already in that space. You don't have to rush into this overnight. They'll take some time to really learn about this, and we have examples of that in our company. Um, wh- one of our product development folks worked for a major MNC, and it was almost a year before he actually made the jump. But he took he took his time to really understand the space and know where he can make an, uh, an impact before he made
1: that uh, made that jump. That's so smart, and I love what you said about the fact that the advice that you got, I was going to ask that, but you already covered it about that. You can make a ton of money in almost anything. And that's something I haven't heard phrased in that specific way before, but I really, really love it because you have this sense that for some people, there is no choice. And for many people, circumstance or education or poverty, their background makes it impossible for them to look beyond a very narrow horizon. I punch in, punch out. And the best I could do is find another opportunity to punch and punch out after the first one, take on two, three jobs. It's it's tough out there. We know that. For the average person, it is incredibly tough. The work climate is weird and bad and strange. But there are other people who you do have that strong sense that it really is a choice where you choose to focus your attention, where you choose to focus your energy and I think what you said isn't true for en- everybody. It is true for you, obviously. And I guess what I'm trying to do with this show and in general is to get more people like you or who have that capacity to shift. <laughs> That's That would be my greatest desire from doing this is one person like you saying, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to that path now.
0: You, you know, uh, Ross, one of the most interesting things about this space, traditionally, most of the... Real hardcore talent, the amazing world-class talent for this space actually are still in biotech and therapeutics and so forth. So those people are rock stars. And it took a while for them to see this whole industry mature themselves to get a little bit more confident about, hey, listen, this is a real industry. This is not some fringe thing that's going to disappear in a few years. And many have many of them are now starting to cross over. and I love that. I love that. I think this is really exciting because if we're gonna real, really have an impact in this space, we need more talent uh, to come across from some of these other industries, whether it's engineering or or or, or therapeutics to be able to come in and make that uh, make that change. Uh, but yes, I, I think that many of, of these folks are looking are learning and they're listening to podcasts like yours. and I, I know a lot of people have listened to podcasts and and looked at reinventing themselves following that. So I think this kind of stuff does have an impact on people.
1: Yeah, and it's just so great. Well, for me personally, one of the greatest things it's been so reaffirming to sit across from intelligent people who are making, who have their priorities in the right place. I've talked to a lot of people in the past who made a lot of money, but they did it in ways that I felt were unethical or kind of shady, or yes, they gamed the system in some way, but it wasn't something that you could really feel good about. And I was just listening to a show—my uh, wife listens to Oprah sometimes, and she has books by Eckhart Tolle and that. And I was listening to some interview between Oprah and Eckhart Tolle talking about spirituality and whatever uh, his, his book is. And there was a moment where Oprah was talking about appreciating the trees and nature and all of this. And then she felt for her audience that she had to clarify by saying, oh, I'm not talking about any kind of hippy-dippy nonsense granola-eating and the fact that she felt that she had to put that parenthetical in there to me it's i thought why why do you feel the need to diminish nature or these ideas by associating them with hippies or radicals or losers or idiots and so this branding, this perception that it is for idiots or dreamers or pie in the sky people, that has to change. And people have to realize, yes, there's real money there. Yes, there's real smart people there. There are these and these aren't people who just couldn't get a job or couldn't hack it somewhere else. Like No, they could hack it anywhere. They just chose to do this because they believed in something.
0: You're absolutely right. And I think as time goes on, we're seeing that a lot more young folks coming out of college uh, as well are starting to ask these same questions. What's actually important to me in life? Where do I want to be? You know, it's not about survival. I know I can find something to eat, uh, but it's about what what gets me excited in life. And I think that nature aspect, um, being able to uh, enjoy our our environment is becoming a big thing. I mean, there's a lot of anxiety amongst young folks these days uh, about whether or not they're going to have access to the same type of jungles, forests, and, and uh, national parks that we've enjoyed historically. So um, I, I do believe that many of these folks who are coming into this industry want that. I do believe that in the general public, we all love the nature and we only freak out when, when we don't have it. Right. And this the only time that we were like, hey, what the heck? Where is where's my park at? Uh, only people who don't have access to this, those places are the ones who are complaining about it. And I think sometimes um, we just take things for granted. Uh, so I, I, I do believe that I, I do hope that that changes. So.
1: Yeah, it seems like that's been the story of humanity for the last several decades, taking things for granted just across the board. And perhaps now we're not going to be able to do that to that extent anymore. We're not going to be able to take these supply chain Things for granted, Like you said, you're in a region that imports almost everything. Supply chain is a huge, huge, huge deal. Who has what? Where is that located? How do we get it from A to B? All of these things are interconnected. You've got a gas shortage over here. Well, how are things going to get imported over there? It's all interconnected. And doing this has made me realize that more and more exactly how these connections are formed and how things that seem to be at first totally different issues are actually not. They're all related. And the great joy of doing this has just been sort of peeling back the onion on that and just getting a sense. You'll say something over here, it's like, oh, three weeks ago, somebody else said something totally different in a completely different field, but they're they're related. And, and I love thinking about that. And I'm very curious, you know, in the next, uh, yeah, the next five years when you start making inroads into which market is going to break first for you, which one is going to be the first most awesome? Is it going to be... I mean, do you have a gut feeling on that? Uh,
0: you, you know, absolutely. I, I think uh, for Total Tree, we're actually looking to launch a, a product to the market um, sometime next year. Uh, so we're actually very excited about that. Um, I'm not sure when this is going to be aired, but one really Hopefully great thing that. is... Uh, <laughs> One great thing is uh, the Singapore um, Prime Minister's office invited Turtle Tree to actually represent Turtle Tree uh, at the COP27 in Egypt this year in November. Uh, we'll be showcasing some of our early products there. But I think this is really an exciting time because we're seeing a lot of great products, sustainable products that are starting to hit the market. In the next five years, we really want to be one of the global uh, major players in this bioactive dairy proteins or healthier uh, proteins that we can actually produce using our platform, uh, and and really make a dent there. And as you mentioned earlier, the supply chains. We also want to be able to work with the supply chains to be able to integrate our technologies and our solutions into the existing supply chains as well.
1: Sounds fantastic. Well. Clearly you got a great head on your shoulders. I have the utmost faith that you're gonna pull this off and it's gonna be fantastic. I really look forward to what you bring out in the next year and also to how it impacts not only people like me, but again, those other people around the world who really need something like this and they need it yesterday. So very exciting. I can't thank you enough for sitting and sharing your valuable time with me, Max. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, I hope that made a difference. I hope people listening out there, have, you know, found something really
0: useful out of here. Please follow us or come, uh, go to our website, uh, totaltree.com, uh, or follow us on LinkedIn. But just, uh, and if nothing else, be inspired to do something. Everyone has a has a um, has a place in this in, in this table.
1: Yep, I couldn't have said it better myself. So with that, we're going to wrap things up here, and the official podcast is over.